guys, it's oh, January 6, 2018. Do you guys surprised I got the year right? Yes. Yeah, good job. Yeah. <laughs> Ben's like a definitive yes, I'm surprised. <laughs> and it's episode 127. And with me, as usual, are Laurel Black. Hi. And Megan Arns joining from Costa Rica. Hello. Megan, what are you doing in Costa Rica? I'm here partly on vacation uh, here on winter break trying to catch some sun and also for a friend's wedding. That's really smart. Winter here really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's so bad right We're now. We're up in the rainforest right now, so it's a little it's chilly, but you know, down by the beach it's between 80 and 85, so I was I was listening to NPR to just a few minutes ago and I mean it sounds like in parts of the northeast, I mean it's it's a, like a crisis right now. Yeah, all the snow. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's bad. People without heat and people, uh, yeah, trying to hang in there, literally. Also, here is Ben Charles. Hey, everybody. Are you anywhere interesting, Ben? I'm uh, just back at home in Texas now. But it's warm. Uh, it's kind of cold in the morning, but it was like in the 60s yesterday. I went for a run, so that was nice. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That's good running weather. <laughs> Yeah. It was really cold when I got back, though. I had to drive through, like, icy roads. It was, like, 12 degrees when I first got back. So not all paradise here. So more, <laughs> more on a weather-related topic. Our guest has been touring, and we had scheduled to record this yesterday, but with flight delays in the Northeast, and due to the snowstorm, she has arrived now, and we're recording early. She arrived late last night, so uh, just one thing after the other, busy, busy, busy. So, you guys, she is the Associate Professor of Percussion at Northwestern University. She's been a featured artist in, you know, everything, so many PASICs, all the international festivals, many, many, many times. It doesn't make any sense for me to to name these off, because it would make more sense to find ones that she hasn't been a soloist at. So, yeah, she's she's done everything. Her resume is huge. Her commission roster includes composers like Eric Uways and Paul Lansky and Robin Engelman. She's designed her own signature mallets through Innovative Percussion, and most recently she contributed to the new Majestic Reflection Marimba, which I hope she tells us a lot about. So, you guys, hey, welcome, Shi E. Wu. How's it going? Good. Hello from Chicago, which is I think is one degree outside. Oh, yeah. degree. Look at that. Wow. <laughs> See, so it's not so bad. You have a degree. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, why don't you kick off a question? It looks like you got something. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to ask. We were talking a few weeks ago about Erica Wazen, and Casey already mentioned that name. And uh, I remember specifically Casey and I were saying that way back when we got your recording of the Awazen Marimba Concerto, and it's one of the longer percussion concertos out there. It's, what, about 30 minutes long. Um, and your recording of it is just outstanding. Could you tell us about kind of working on the development of that work and that recording in particular? Yeah, um, that was actually crazy because I had listened to Northern Lights, uh, a PASIC, I think Gordon played it in 93 or something at a PASIC convention. And um, I, I wasn't, I was like, oh, that's a very long piece. That piece is what about? 13 to 15 minutes long. It's a little long. Not until maybe 97 or 98, I kind of got into it. And then I started to play that piece, kind of toured with it. And I was in Taiwan 
playing. It just happened to be because I think I can count maybe two or three times in the past 20 some years I played there. But anyway, uh, after I played a concert, a conductor came over seriously and said, I, I really like that piece. And I said, oh, I, I will be sure to to tell him if I ever meet him. He goes, uh, what do you think about, this conductor said, what do you think about me commissioning, him commissioning Eric for a concerto? And I said, you mean you, you will pay for it, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That's what, that's what that means. <laughs> yes, my orchestra will, will, will take care of that. And I said, I will be, I will find him. So I came back really excited and I find Eric. And he, he you know, he, if you know him at all, he's like a teddy bear. Yeah, yeah, let's get together. So I played Northern Lights for him and he was, he was happy. And so I, he accepted the commission. Oh, and, cool. Back in the, there's no internet, right? And so, like a little, like a big portable phone still is happening. <laughs> you will wait and then you will fax a couple pages, seriously. And then I will practice and then I will dial him and put him on the music stand and then play. I mean, it's got to be distorted like crazy. And then he listened, he goes, Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's great. And that's how it went. And then we went over to uh, uh, do the world premiere and it happened to be the one of the biggest disasters, actually, earthquake. Thousands of people died in Taiwan. So he dedicated this piece to the firefighters in in Taipei. It's uh, it, it's just crazy. Wow. This piece, you know, Ben brought this up because it came up on another episode, and we were talking about influential marimba CDs for us when we were younger. And this is one of the ones that... I got in, I don't know, early undergrad, I think early undergrad, and just played it to death, like memorized every little thing on it. I mean, just knew it so well. <laughs> you look concerned. It's really good. It was like a really important CD for me, but I loved the concerto. And I remember thinking, oh, it sounds so, it comes off sounding like it's a piece of cake. And I, my friend and I got the music and we started diving into it. And yeah, I, couldn't couldn't even come close to playing it. It's so much harder than it sounds. If mm -hmm. if I could just out nerd Casey for a moment, not only did I do that, you I can't. bought I bought the concerto and I ran up to Shii at Pasic and had her sign my copy of it. <laughs> wow. That that happened when I was five? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I can be out nerded. I think I saw I saw Shee play at a Pasic. I remember she premiered Virginia Tate, and every there was so much, there was so much energy in the air because it was like, wow, the new Paul Smadbeck piece, the next rhythm song piece, and it was such a big deal. But yeah, instead of running up and getting a signature, my my attitude was, I want to play it cool. I'm gonna pretend like I'm, you know, really cool. I was that kind of kid. But you know. <laughs> Because I think that was my first PASIC. It was like, it was early on, yeah, for sure. It was my first like solo PASIC performance, I believe. Mm. It might have been my first attended PASIC, too. I want to say it was in 2000, but I, I could be wrong. I think it was 2000. I think so, too. Yeah. Hey, does anybody have a Facebook question there for Shee? Yeah, I've got one. This comes from Larry Lawless. He says, you are in great demand as a performer. How do you balance your performance schedule with your teaching duties at Northwestern? Besides um, not sleeping, which we're assuming you don't do. Yeah. 
uh, my teacher Bob Shatroma from North Texas. That is his, uh, one of the teachings. He would say something like, oh, we'll be like, oh, we don't get enough sleep. And he said, you can sleep when you're dead. And um, I'm not saying that I, 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 I really believe that because I think we do need to sleep. Um, it is very difficult. I, I believe a lot of sacrifices had to be made. I, I love, I really love hanging out with friends, but I have to sacrifice a, a lot of that. I, I once in a while I would type, you know, text my friend, uh, the horn professor. Hey, you think I can stop by, you know, to, just to see you for half an hour? Because I really miss being with friends too. I just, it's just a lot of work. And, but I think it, I, I blame on myself though. I have a lot of different interests. I, I like teaching. I like playing. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the design of the instruments. I think that we need to all continue to expand the repertoire. So we need to write, we need to commission and, um, there is uh, something I'm very passionate about. I, I really do believe that we should, um, we need to start education earlier. And so I st I've been starting uh, middle school camps. I know, look at me, middle school camps uh, in California and Texas and Georgia. And I, um, maybe because I don't have children. Mm -hmm. so I, I'm, I really am uh, passionate about teaching other people's, educating other people's children. And I think that's important. And all every single thing that I just talked about, writing music or performing, educating, and seminars and comp even competitions, takes a lot of time. Every single thing. And even helping reinventing or inventing uh, instruments, every single thing takes so much time. And, and it's my own fault that I'm just interested in many different things. Even Laurel's project. I, I got so into it. I, I think it's one of the best thing ever happened. And so I, it, so I just try to not sleep too much. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I try to, I, I think, um, one of the motivating parts is that there are all these things that I really enjoy doing. And so I don't think about balancing them, you know, I, I just, I get up and I really want to do the, these things. Like, oh, I, I, you should see some of these people in China. I just come off from uh, came off from the China tour. It's like the, it's like food for them, and it's beautiful to see that. Even though I had just slept for three hours and blah blah blah, I I find energy somewhere somehow mm -hmm. about music. This this seems to come up. I, I mean, I don't know how many times you guys think this question has occurred on our just on our podcast. Quite a few times. I mean, I think this question yeah. has probably come up literally twenty times. I mean, it's it's a it's a serious mystery, and the answers are always very similar. Like, I I really don't know how I do it, but I do it, mm -hmm. and that's always the answer. I mean, you, I I thought about it in preparing to since this was coming up again. I thought about I wonder if it'd be interesting to find how many self help books there are on like time management because like, you guys know there are probably thousands, right? I mean, there are probably oh, yeah. so many like. This is such a key mystery for people to figure out. So, you know, students out there like, yeah, we don't, I guess we don't really know exactly how to do this, but all we know is that the successful people like GE totally do it. Ben, I'm sorry. I, I stepped on you. What do you got there? Yeah. Well, this, I actually have a question unrelated to what I'm about to say, but 
It, it reminds me of like on Emil Richards' episode. Someone asks, "You're like Emil's what, like 80, 90 years old?" Someone asks, "You know, how are you still doing this?" And it's like, it's just passion. It's not. <laughs> that's all it is. And if Emil Richards wasn't passionate about it, he wouldn't still be doing it. But he is, and so he's still doing it quite well at a very high level. But one thing, she, you mentioned the Horn Professor at Northwestern, and I remember a few years ago, I think it was an interview that Mark Ford did with you, you mentioned that you were working on a piece with, it's a female rate, like with her, and it, you said, I think you played everything but marimba, and I've never, I don't know of this piece if it ever came to fruition, so could you tell us about that project? Um, yeah, it's on her CD. Uh, I play vibraphone maracas, uh, shakers, uh, kimbales. If you like to see my uh, timbali debut, uh, that's uh, that's it's <laughs> <laughs> for horn, string, double bass, and clarinet and percussion. It's in yeah. five movements. Uh, it's by a, wow. Uh, you just caught me off uh, Douglas something Douglas Hill. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really accessible piece. I think um, it just imagine the combination of the four instruments. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Did you have something, Laurel? Well, I was just going to say that, um, you know, you're talking about people who are able to do so many things. And I think that uh, there has to be some recovery somewhere. And I can't remember if we said this after we'd started or before, but we said, she, when's your vacation? <laughs> when do you get to have a break? And it was like, maybe tomorrow. Cause classes start Monday. <laughs> and so I just, just for everyone who's maybe not, you know, totally keeping up with your schedule. I was talking to Casey the other day and we were going through like, okay, since PASIC, she has been, in England and France and then a couple of other different countries. And you've done a couple of other camps in the U S and I'm just wondering if any of those were um, like just vacation trips for you amidst all the, the working and the teaching that you were doing. You really want to know? Yeah. No, I had, I had maybe a half day. Um, I decided to go to Scotland, so I took the train, went to Scotland, and bought some whiskeys. <laughs> um, I I was by myself the entire time, and Thanksgiving in London was um, was pretty blue. I gotta say, mm. it was my fourth year in London by myself, and so I bought a. I was teaching at Royal College of Music and was 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. I had just arrived that morning, and I taught like 10 hours straight. And then, you know, my, my vision was sort of blurry, dizzy, I'm exhausted. And so I went to the grocery store, and there was like the very one only roasted chicken standing there, really sad looking. And then I stopped. Today's Thanksgiving. I should have a bird. So I, I asked the woman, I said, could, could I have that? And she said, yeah, it's been sitting here for a long time. I guess I'll give you half off. Seriously, she she like she felt sorry for me. And so I took it and I went, home, went back to the hotel. I had it there. And it, no, it hasn't been vacation at all. It's, it's been working. But like I said, um, I, I was doing something in Paris after that, and so so I was in England, and 
I went to Scotland do something, you know, by, for myself. And um, but this 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 Asia tour was, um, I think, the most fun that I had in a while, just because. To see, just see the students' eyes, you know that that probably gave me the motivation to just keep going, just keep going. Um, but I did eat a lot. I gained something like five pounds <laughs> because uh, that's how, that's how I guess what we celebrate. You know, we we work really hard, and then I get together with all the teachers, and and then we we go have a fabulous meal, and then the next day, next city. So. Mm-hmm. I did meet a lot of new friends, which is very, um, it was fun to meet them. Yeah. Good. You did say it got a little lonely sometimes. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie, Hillary and Jackie. It's about Jacqueline Dupuy, the cellist, and her sister. And of course, Jacqueline Dupuy is the famous star, but her sister is a flautist. And it talks about them coming up together. And Jackie's career takes off. And of course, she's touring all over the world. But there's also this sadness that goes along with, okay, you're meeting all these new people all the time, but it's, it's, uh, it's still somehow lonely. And yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how that turns into a question, but is, do you have, do you have any, I don't know, is that true, she for you? Is that, is that something to relate to or we could, we could share with people for them to look out for? Is there a message there? Yeah, when I was uh, maybe uh, 19, my teacher, Bob Shachoma, Doc, uh, he was like, just like picking up, course and then working on stuff and then he said um um do you know what it feels like to be a soloist mm. what the fuck is and then i had no idea what he was talking about this is like 30 years ago almost 30 years ago and i said i don't know what you're referring to and he said you know to be a soloist you are in green you you travel by yourself you're at the airport by yourself you're in the hotel by yourself. You go to the green room by yourself. You're on stage by yourself. And then, you know, they might take you out to eat. After that, you're back to the hotel by yourself. And then you go to the airport and everything just like just cycles through. And then I realized that mm, I think it would be different if I had somebody in my life at the moment. I, I don't. And so the only thing that was alive for a while, it was the orchid in my apartment. It's Mr. O. Yeah. <laughs> and even he left because oh. I was over something like a month and uh, he couldn't handle that. So, but he hung in there for almost 10 years. It was uh, pretty significant for me. But when he, when he, when he uh, left, it, 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 it did something to, to, to me, I think I was thinking, wow, even the plan, even Mr. O can't handle it. So I can only imagine if, if I had a significant partner in my life, how that person would, would uh, react to my schedule. Like, for example, I just looked at my calendar. This is really just, uh, I, I'm just look, trying to trying to plan what I need to practice and all that. I think I could have a date maybe in August. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness. Like August. 
and I will uh, go hiking and, you know, I, I need to do that because I really like canoeing or kayaking and that kind of stuff. But August, mm-hmm. who yeah. can handle Probably no one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's so... So that contributes to loneliness a little bit. Because I think that if I knew that somebody's waiting for me to come home and I will see this person and I will get to cook with this person, I would probably feel slightly different. I don't know. Yeah. I, I see. It, first of all, thank you for opening up like this. I think it's such a it's so great when we hear things that we haven't heard before on the podcast and, uh, you know, Megan, Ben and Laurel, you know, I'm trying so hard to always get like, try to get new things out of people. So it's so cool when we get that, but it's such an important message to share with people. And I can relate. I, I get the same way I get, I get sad traveling. And I remember telling, I remember telling Megan on one of our episodes, like, man, I just do not like traveling. And that's a big part of it. And I also remember telling you guys, asking you about if you get emotional on planes or not. And I read an article saying there is some science about people that get much more emotional on planes. And I definitely do. I, I'm not the kind of person that cries at movies on a regular basis, but on a plane, I'm so much more vulnerable to that. And yeah, there is something about, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a mystery, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's important to, to share with people is, is there a, you know, for, for the people who don't know, for the students out there that they, they don't know what it's like to have a tour and they don't know what it's like to be sponsored and, and do all this stuff is the answer simply like, okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to travel less. Like, can you make that decision? I, I think I can. I, I think that decision is like if if I somehow am not as interested as doing all these things and or these projects, I think I can make that call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I could. But I, I I can relate to you, Casey, talking about the airplane that happened this trip. I don't know what happened. I, I was just thinking about life in general and then just like <laughs> i'm wondering what the person felt like i was bawling you know the person's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't mean to and you know this person eventually said are you okay yeah i'm sorry I, yes i'm fine but sobbing is not i mean crying is one thing sobbing is another yeah it's the plane, though. I mean, the plane is a huge... I'm telling you, it's embarrassing, too, because here I am, a grown-ass man, sobbing to Finding Nemo. And I know, like, you're supposed to, you know, cry to Finding Nemo, but I've seen it, like, 50 times. I know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's all these gr- grown-ups around you watching, like, you know, grown-up stuff. Anyway, what do you, what do you, <laughs> what do you got, Megan? <laughs> well, I was just going to ask... Well, first of all, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for all your contributions to the field because I think going along with this conversation, it's like, you know, devoting yourself to your career and a performance career and a teaching career and all the interests that you have, you know, are you know, maybe for yourself in some way, but like you're affecting so many people and so many people have been affected by your music and been moved by your music and your teaching and the instrument development. So thank you for yeah. for all of that and the sacrifices you've made to make all of those things happen. I'm wondering, I recently met a 
cello soloist who, you know, travels around the world and like, that's his gig. And I just can't name too many percussionists who do that full time. I don't know. Maybe you guys can help me with that. Colin Curry, right. Is full time. I think he teaches also, but there are just not many percussionists who just solo. Maybe Evelyn Glennie, but like full time, full time percussion soloist. And I'm wondering if that was ever something that you considered or something that your students ever consider or, um, colleagues that you've run into, um, and saying that maybe the teaching and the playing is too much. Maybe I should just do the playing. If that's even an option for us as percussionists, has that ever been a serious consideration for you? I, I originally, um, wasn't sure if I was gonna, I, I like teaching, and then I got into it because this has something to do with my teacher at North Texas again, Doc. Um, he, uh, he, he was he went on sabbatical, and then he asked me to try teaching his students, and that was very difficult for me because I was younger, and I had to teach like master students and doc, doctoral students. It, it was very difficult, but. Um, he he told me he thinks that I, I could do it, and I tried it, and I thought, well, this is very interesting because in order to explain to somebody, I really need to figure out what I'm doing, and I have to say, uh, it was always going to be I really like playing, I really like playing, I really like playing, but I now say I really like teaching. I really like teaching. I miss my students. And when I say I miss my students, don't freak out, but I really do miss them. When I don't see them in the summer, I sometimes text them. How are you doing? They probably go like, wow, she's checking in on me just to see if I'm <laughs> has nothing to do with it. It's just, I'm used to seeing them like every day, right? Like from Monday to Thursday. And and suddenly they're they went home and you know I don't see them and I really I really like teaching I can't see myself ever ever stop teaching and if anything has got to go it's probably the playing because I I think I can live without it although not at the moment but yeah don't think I can live without teaching mm-hmm. yeah wow cool what do you got Ben. Yeah, so you've mentioned Doc several times, and uh, I know he's very influential, and you also studied with Mr. Jew, and I was wondering if you could just tell us about those two teachers. You've already spoken quite a bit about Doc, but those two teachers and their influence on you as a person and a player. There are a couple of people in my life. It's it's really uh, the turning point, and if I may, I, I hope that I won't regret sharing this. And perhaps this is what Casey is looking for, something completely <laughs> guard. Uh, so here, here it goes. Um, I, I started as three and a half years old, walking down the street. My mother is trying to raise two kids. Um, we walked by a sort of like an instrumental store. And then I saw a lot of kids in there, a lot of piano, a lot of saxophone and flutes and drums. I was uh, very taken by the sound. So I, I, I grabbed onto the door, and then the, the, my mother was like, do, 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 do you want to go in? I said, yes. She said, but we have to go. And I said, I, I really, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't leave. 
So she had to let me into the store. And from that point on, it was the, maybe the opening of another world that I've never seen before. I got in there and I got, I was playing piano. I've never, you know, really play on the piano. So she, she the lady was uh, in charge of the, the, the store said, you know, we have classes for age four on. And my mother grabbed my hand, said, sorry, she's throwing three and a half. And, you know, we, we, we plus we can't afford it either. And she's like trying to drag me out of the store. And this lady, I was like, imagine me holding onto the leg of the piano. I would not leave. Willful. <laughs> And then she goes, we have to go. And then the lady said, you know, you know, just, just hold. She said, how about you just bring her here and I won't charge you. Wow. Okay. So I started a group lessons in class. I enjoyed it so much. And then when I was six years old, my mother said to me, you know, I I think, um, I think you, you will benefit. Maybe you want to learn another instrument other than piano. So I said, Okay. And she said, you know, I've been waiting for my whole life for this day to come. And I'm looking at my mother and she has this really beautiful smile and smirking as well. And then I'm going, she said, you're getting a French horn lesson. And she was so excited because that was her favorite instrument. And imagine me six years old, tiny and like, An hour later, there was no sound coming out other than a lot of spit. Uh, I don't think your daughter is cut out for a horn. Sorry. Maybe. So she, my mother was so disappointed. And then she took me home. She said, well, what would you like to learn since you, you, you can't learn French horn? I said, timpani. Yeah. Hmm. You don't even know what that is. And I said, I do. Back in orchestra. I really, really, I mean, I I think they're really, really great. Because I think I respond to the vibration and the sound and the sheer harmony and rhythmic combination. So she said, are you sure you don't want to play flute? I said, I'm certain. (laughs) Be lessons. And I started that this journey, and then uh, when I was nine, so I studied with somebody else. When I was nine, I studied with Mr. Ju. He had just came back from Vienna. Perfect. He studied with Hawkreiner. I mean, my goodness. So I'm like yeah. the grand grand students of Hawkreiner. Anyhow, so um, more timpani. I was really happy. Uh, they built me a two-step stool that I can climb on so I can play timpani. And they all went really well until Mr. Ju said, you guys, you guys start studying snare drum and other things. So I did, and it was snare drum and xylophone. And I did not play any marimba until maybe in middle school. So two miles all the way. I was too young to join the Ju percussion group. So I, I was always on the sideline because I was nine years old. I mean, just too young. And so by the time I was maybe 17, <clears throat> I had de- decided I was going to go to Vienna, right? Because Mr. Jew. And so I was going to go to Vienna, study uh, to become the timpanist. Little did I know that a female timpanist, just to be a timpanist is one, the female timpanist in Vienna. It's unthinkable. I mean, that, at that time, but I was like, I'm going to go to Vienna, study to be the next timpanist. Well, I fell in love with somebody. And that person 
went to North Texas. Denton, Texas. <laughs> is it, is Not it Ben? Vienna. <laughs> Not Vienna, yeah. <laughs> so, percussionist, and he had always wanted to study with somebody who taught Dave Weckl, and that person is itself. And so SF teaches at North Texas. So he went, he's a few years older than me. So he went and then, so we were talking on the phone and he said, you must come to North Texas. So imagine me telling my mother, I'm stopping learning German and I'm going to start taking English classes and pay, you know, pay, pay for classes for TOEFL and I'm going to Texas. And my mother's like, what? <laughs> yes. Texas. <laughs> well, so I, I chose Texas because, North Texas, because of the guy I was dating. No, for no reason. I did not know who was teaching there. I had no idea what kind of program that is. I just noticed, yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 but... This is the twist. Laura will love this. The twist is, I got there and uh, we immediately broke up. <laughs> oh, no. oh. So I found myself in the middle of nowhere. Uh, stores closed at 7 or 8 or 9 or something like that. I didn't have a car. So I practiced a lot. Yeah. I had nothing else to do. I, I didn't know anybody. I couldn't even speak English at that time. Ask all my friends from drumline that taught me how to speak English. So every other word was four letters, you know, short, but uh, powerful. Um, but um, in terms of percussion, just six months before, or maybe nine months before I went to North Texas, I, I realized I don't know how to play four mallets. <laughs> I picked up and I play traditional grip. I play yellow after the rain like everybody else. So just imagine I got to North Texas and all the people play rhythm song and this and that and <laughs> what those are. I've never heard of those before. So that was a, that was a turning point. And I, I joined Drumline because it was really cool because um, – DC, I happened to be in Dallas that year. I, I was like sneaking into the stadium watching Vanguard rehearsing. Ah, I wanted to march Vanguard if that that was possible, but I was just watching. And then I, um, I went to three nights in a row to see DCI that year. This was 1991. And then I made a huge impact. So I was like, who... Uh, so I was a performance major, so I volunteered to be in marching band for four years. <laughs> I could be in drumline. Wow. That's wow. actually one of, one of the coolest things I ever found out is that my third year at North Texas, I taught the pit and the marching band, and someone was like, you know, Shi Wu did this too. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> what school was that? UNT. I thought you were teaching. No, you were in it. No, no. Well, my third year, like, I, I was in it for two years. Then my third year, I got to teach the pit. I think I did that when I was a junior or a senior, too. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Troy Hall actually asked, what is your favorite memory of being in Drumline with Troy Hall? If you can share it on the podcast. <laughs> right. I will say something. They taught me not only not only embraced me and accepted me into drumline, I, I really could not speak English. So um, that 
taught me how to speak, and they taught me the passion of how how they felt about that that group. Everyone in that drum line would would rehearse sometimes until two a.m. and come back at eight a.m. They loved to drum, and I felt so at home because I've never been with a, a group that loved drumming music so much that they they do party together at the same time. Yes, yes. But uh, I do remember one time I, I told them, I said, uh, maybe this is after a few libation, yeah? Drumline was having a party, and then I said something like, you know, you, you guys taught me how to speak English, but you never taught me how to sing national anthem. So they were like, oh, seriously, the entire drumline was was singing that at 2 o'clock in the morning, showing me how to say, how to sing this. It was memorable. Troy was. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what, did, what did you play in the drum line? I was in the pit, but there was one time I was at PASIC in line. Uh, there's a difference between a, like a marching band line and the PASIC line. And my teacher was crazy, right? He's crazy. He said, I want the pit to play the snare drum, and then I want the snare line come to the, the pit. I was carrying a drum and you know trying to march and I look horrible. I the drum was <laughs> I'm five one on a good day, maybe five two. I'm just too short and the, the drum was I I, I look terrible. So he said, bad, bad, just just forget what I said. So he put me back in the pit. <laughs> one of one of my favorite PASIC memories is when I was a student, I played on that same indoor drum line at PASIC. And she, whenever they play, sits in the front row and screams her head off. It's great. I, I we all have to get initiated, right? Like it's like a fraternity. I don't know why I'm trying to say it secretly because this is a podcast. Anyhow, um, but we have to get initiated into it, and then we get a jacket. But all the things that you have to do to get that jacket, it's something that will remain secret. We'll get it out of Ben. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Oh man! So there are a few. Let's give Shiyu a quick a quick little break talking, and Ben, I think you have some symphony news. There's a couple items of symphony news, so we're probably going to get to the San Antonio one in an episode or two. But you've got something mm-hmm. from the Boston Symphony, right, Ben? Yeah, well, and it's really prominent. Shiyu was talking about wanting to be a timpanist, and then finding out that being a female timpanist was like a a thing, uh, a rare thing. And I saw this article from the Boston Globe a couple of weeks ago, and I'll just read the first little bit of it. Uh, it reads, a group of more than 60 area musicians is urging the Boston Symphony Orchestra to expand its programming beyond a white male canon to feature more works by female composers and people of color. In an open letter, the group pointed out Though the symphony touts its diverse programming, the 2017-18 to season showcases neither diversity nor innovation. Of the 73 pieces scheduled to be performed at Symphony Hall, only one is by a woman, the group noted. The remaining 72 pieces are all written by white men, wrote the signatories, including performers in local ensembles and academics from Boston-area institutions, including Harvard University and Berklee College of Music. The BSO should demonstrate a commitment to equity by showcasing musical talent that is 
too often marginalized. Shang Paul, sorry, sorry, Pong Lu, a Boston area violinist and composer who signed the letter, said the BSO is out of step. At a time when racism is a critical topic nationally and locally, the BSO is disturbingly wedded to their brand of elite European white male music and a home concert stage hall whose audience looks nothing like the community in which they perform, Lou told The Globe via email. Um, so I did some sort of digging online about this, and I just wanted to share a few things that I found, one of which was from a discussion, uh, like a comment thread online about this, and someone posted, let me pull it up here, and someone posted, I'm on board with the idea that representation of different groups of people in media can influence people to pursue different ro fields. Role models are important. I think it's an idea worth pursuing to some extent, but I'm skeptical that 20% is the right number, referring to this letter wants 20% of the works next season to be by these women and non-white composers. He says, I absolutely agree that there is tons of music worth out there from female and non-white composers. I think it's especially true of music that's being composed today. If the BSO were a contemporary musical ensemble, I'd say the number 20% would be too low, if anything. I'm not sure the comparison to blind auditions is all that helpful. Blind auditions were useful because they were able to solve a problem that was caused by sexism slash racism, that female slash non-white musicians were judged more harshly when they auditioned for orchestras. The Darth of female composers in the 18th and 19th centuries is certainly also due, at least in part, to a kind of institutional sexism, but we can't go back in time and fix that. The vast majority of classical composers from that era were white men. I don't think it's such an issue that programming from that era reflects that. You could argue that the BSO should be programming more modern slash contemporary music, and I would definitely welcome that, but I think that's mostly a separate conversation. And so I did some more digging online, and I found there is a women composers database by a guy named Rob Deemer. And if you go on here, it's literally, I mean, in the thousands of pieces listed by female composers. Um, likewise, if you just go on Wikipedia and look for a list of female composers by birth year that exists, and there are fewer of them certainly from the older centuries, but when it comes to like the 19th century, I mean, there are just tons and tons, and this is the same era as... Tchaikovsky, for example, so I don't think that 19th century female composers are all that rare. And someone else, I think it was on the same discussion board, posted the thought that symphonies are not commercial institutions. They're not out to try and turn a profit, and it's important they have a cultural mission, and if their mission is exclusively to promote the works of Beethoven, which are great works, um, but if you're exclusively promoting Beethoven, I think that you're not necessarily fulfilling your cultural duty. And I wanted to point out also one, one of the cooler things I found was that John Mackey at the Midwest Clinic this year actually did not have his, did not control his own booth. He turned his booth over to uh, women and non-white composers to promote their works. He did not promote his own works at Midwest this year. So I think it's mm, cool. certainly a, a very wow. healthy discussion. I yeah, I think it's certainly a very healthy discussion to have. Um, and uh, quite frankly, when I first started thinking about this, I was like, well, yeah, of course, like all the big, you know, 18th, 19th century composers were white guys until I found out, no, they weren't. And there are actually plenty of old works. And in terms of modern works by female composers, for example, there's 
Jennifer Higdon, Anna Klein, Libby Larson. I could go on naming people. There's tons and tons of wonderful uh, current female composers. Um, and shoot, I had one more thought, but I just it just escaped me. <laughs> um, it, may, it makes me think of Elizabeth Blair's podcast, who mm-hmm. we had her on the yeah. show. She's she's a, a feminist and runs a, a podcast called Listening to Ladies. And yeah, great podcast series for sure. Oh, sorry. And she highlights. Sorry, go ahead. I just remember what my other topic was. One, one interesting thing to me, and I think we've mentioned this several times before is that so much of modern, I guess what we would call classical percussion is driven by the Chi'iwu's, Evelyn Glennie's, Keiko Abe's, all these female players that, I mean, it's almost, for me, it's almost difficult to think of male percussionists that have really influenced me as a musician because so many of them are these powerful female players and you know, many of them composers themselves. Sorry, Casey, go ahead. I was going to say me too, and we've, we've said this before. Yeah, Nancy, Koshka, Keiko, Shi'i. I mean, there's like, yeah, it's almost a Evelyn. It's almost like a female, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. especially Marimba, you know? I mean, at least the, those were the, the people I was I was looking at. Yeah, it's interesting to see this article and then also see the problem like San Antonio, you know, which is a, you know, a struggle that symphonies have, you know, corruption, money, and just simple funding. But somewhere in the San Antonio conflict, someone said, we have to program more things that will sell tickets. So, you know, people keep playing Beethoven five, for example, because it sells tickets. It's really tough. I mean, the San Antonio, maybe they want to do things like this. They want to highlight new composers. They want to highlight names that aren't known, but they just can't. I mean, luckily BSO is comfortable. They can even consider this, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, it's something, the thing that grabbed me when Ben was talking is it's a cultural, uh, organization not meant to turn a profit. And it's like, yeah, art's about art, but at some point, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if orchestras were self-sustaining? Cause if they were, then all these things we debate about, like, what are you going to program? What are you going to do? You could do anything, theoretically, because it would mean that the audience is well, there with you. you yeah, know, I mean, that's not trying to convince them, like, no, really, it's cool, I promise. And, you know, the I think the the perception that women didn't write music is just the same as in, you know, like the sciences, Casey, when we listen to that science podcast, it's like, no, women were doing all kinds of things, but they weren't taken seriously. So they published under their husband's names. And, you know, it takes a great amount of scholarship and research to figure out um, who the women were, particularly, you know, a hundred years ago and before that, that were doing something. And I mean, and I would also argue like, as a woman, it's like, I don't, I, I wouldn't want your pity programming, like still great pieces of music. They need to still be great pieces. They can't just be, here's the obligatory piece by a woman this week, you know, cause right. I'm not sure that that's useful in any way. The, yeah. the one thing that I, that came across the thought I had when I was thinking about all this stuff was, do, are you guys familiar with the name Nadia Boulanger? Yeah, uh, she was. She taught so many unbelievable 20th century musicians, including Aaron yeah, like Copeland, Igor Stravinsky, Quincy Jones, and Elliot Carter, which are four yeah. of the most different 
musicians I can think of, and all of those, you know, composers or musicians in their own right, are, are celebrated and performed so much. And I looked, and Nadia Boulanger has two works for symphony that I have never heard of being performed, much less just heard of. And I can't imagine that Nadia Boulanger would have two poor works for orchestra that are published. Right. <laughs> so it's right. like, yeah, it's just, it blows my mind that we don't ever hear pieces by Nadia Boulanger performed or so many of these other great female composers. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got, Megan? Yeah. I mean, I think it took like just responding to Laurel a little bit. It's like, it, it was so many years of, I guess you could say oppression that is just going to take time. And I've I referenced that stat that we talked about several weeks ago from the world economic forum of, you know, when there will be gender, you know, equity in, in oh, the world yeah. <laughs> and that it's so far away. Hundreds of years and away. since we talked about that, I think the Me Too, I think we talked about that before the Me Too movement. And I've just come back to that so many times um, since then. And because that number is movable, you know, that that's not the date. <laughs> that's the right. that's, date. That's the figure when the it was studied. That, yeah, but we're the ones that can contribute to moving moving that date forward. And then, Ben, you had mentioned um, the Rob Deemer list. Um, just to expand on that a little bit, because I've been reading about that, too, um, there's a good quote from him that says, the best way, in my opinion, to address the inequity in programming today is information, said Deemer. It is my hope that this database will help to increase the number of women composers in our concert halls and scholarly research in the years to come. And the list started at 202 females, and that was, I think, in 2012, and now it's grown to, to more than 1,500. And it's cool because there's a Google form also, so if anyone has, you know, everyone should go check this out, and if you know a female composer, composers, um, that you've heard their music, you can actually submit them. It kind of reminds me of Eric's composer circle form. Um, but we can all contribute to this and it's an awesome resource. Everyone should check it out. Yeah. Thanks. Mm. Yeah. She, where, where do you, do, do any thoughts come to mind here? That's very interesting because, um, I've been asked to uh, participate in a concert in North Carolina in April and, um, they're celebrating female performers, performing female composers. And um, so they asked me, and I kept thinking, hmm, something by myself, because it's a solo recital. And then I was thinking, I, I've just been thinking about Christine quite a bit in North Carolina. You know, he used to teach her in the East Carolina. So I am going to write, I'm going to write a vibraphone piece dedicated to Christine. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't know that. I, I hope he, well, he will know if he watches it. I will premiere in April. Yeah. So wow. there are organizations that are doing that and it, it raised awareness. Um, yeah. Well, she, if, we could, if we could follow this topic up with a question, I think you just sort of spun us in this direction. I was reading one of your mini bios online and it talked about your your compositions and I remember hearing you speak a while back about how they're often your ideas come from movies and I saw like one of your compositions is called Up which is one of my favorite movies could you oh. tell us about uh some of your compositions cuz I I've never uh, I heard you perform uh what is it Blue Identity uh, but other than that I've never heard your 
compositions performed. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, I, I minor in composition when I was um, at North Texas uh, getting my master's. Um, I wrote marimba solos, I wrote uh, duos, I wrote woodwind trios, string quartets, all sorts of things. Um, I just didn't think that uh, they were ever good enough to be published, so I, I never did. And then um, not until I had to, I was commissioned to write a piece, uh, like a marimba duo. And so I did do that. But none of the pieces that I've written has been published. Only because I, number one, maybe I just don't think that people want to play it. Number two, I, I'm not sure they're good enough. <laughs> so I only, I mean, I, I've written a marimba quartet. It's called What the Sun Will Say to the Sky. And Marcus High School played it at PASIC at, at their uh, showcase concert at, uh, a couple of years ago. And up, it was for a solo percussionist and seven percussionists in the back. And it did end with balloon going up. Nice. <laughs> and so it's the same color of the balloon, just like the up. I, I, I was so profoundly moved by up. It was crazy. And so I, speaking of bawling, right? Um, I wrote something that was kind of profound. However, the very, very last, maybe 30 seconds, the, on the tune guns, you hear, just that. That's the only thing about up. And then with the balloon goes up. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wrote that. And Blue Identity was inspired by Born Identity. It was like crash and burns and explosions and, and so, all sorts of things. And, Except I was, I was feeling blue. I remember I was in France and taking the train, <clears throat> trains and planes. <laughs> Makes you blue. <laughs> so I wrote that. But I, I am. Um, I, I, I don't know if you knew. I there's one piece I do have published. Just one. The only one. It's called Monologue it's for snare drum. This past year, 2017, I wrote it for Tom Sherwood for the 10th anniversary for the competition because I think that competition is so great. Yeah, um, for sure. And so I, I, I wrote it because I told him I would, but I need to. I need. I've been thinking about the vibraphone piece quite a bit for for Chris Dean. So yeah. yeah. So I don't know why they're not published. I just just I think I. Kind of explain why. Is there something more personal about composing than, say, performing, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think performance, it's like the live theater, right? Like it's there, and you were there, you were there once, and you experienced it, the yes. energy, the momentum. But then composition is like script. Mm -hmm. It's alive. It's so alive, and it could be interpreted differently, and it's there to stay. Well, speaking of exactly this, we have a Facebook question from Will Marinelli. Hey, Will. Will's always great, full of questions for us ever since this podcast has begun. And he asks, how can we continue to advance marimba writing and performance in this day and age? I think we just keep doing what we do, Laura. Keep doing what you do, Ben, Casey, absolutely, and, and Megan. I think we if we all do what we've been doing, and maybe even more. I think, I mean, can't wait for the government to do anything. 
Yeah. They might tweet about it, maybe. <laughs> yeah, they'll <laughs> yeah, tweet about it. They'll tell us how much better they are at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have, a, like, a small question to bounce off of that. Well, comment and question, and that's, um, you know, I don't commission people a lot, but I don't compose because I'm, like, way too self-critical. So, but I find myself telling composers, like, I still want to play the instrument. I, do, like, I'm not interested in how many, like, ends of mallets I can put on something and then hit it and try to get the pitch to bend. And even though I can do that, I've played pieces that do that. It's like, I still want to play the instrument. I think that's not done. Right. And we don't need to add all the bells and whistles yet. And what do you think about that, she? I, I, I'm a totally in agreement. Totally, totally in agreement. Um, I think, look look at the string instruments. Look at piano. I mean, they didn't try to pluck the piano and do anything bizarre, contour the sound until recently. But there are lots of great repertoire and different styles written for the same instrument. And yeah. we could that we can all do that if we just you know megan and laura seriously keep commissioning keep keep writing we have to take matter into our own hands i think right mm -hmm. we we care so much about this the future of this instrument or percussion and music in general mm -hmm. laurel and i were doing a composition masterclass from marimba once and there's maybe uh, i don't know 15 composers student composers in the audience and every single question was, so what does it sound like if you bow the resonator? What does it sound like if you bow the rail? What does it sound like if you, it's why I love that Todd Meehan video of like, put the bass drum on the vibe, now bow it. Oh yeah, that sounds so cool. And, yeah, put a carrot on the vibe. Now, no, not like that, but like this. Now bow it, and it's like so specific or whatever. And but one of the things I asked the the composers, I said like, how many of you have written anything from Rimba? Just yeah. normally, none, nobody. You know, they immediately fast forwarded to the abstract and to, and you know, of course, some people will say like, well, that's just how it is today. That's just where it is. That's where we are nowadays. And but I just I disagree. I really, really disagree. Matisse, Dolly, um, the, the artists that are known for their abstract, they also have classical chops. Like they also understand the the the, the basic core of the craft. They still have the core craftsmanship, and they're ex experts at the core craftsmanship. And then when they do decide to break the rules, yeah, they're like freaking amazing, you know. Um, so yeah, I just. But yeah, I, I would like to say again, like, no, you can't fast forward past all that and expect to get anything good out of it. But I think it's, don't you think it's kind of crazy that, sorry, I mean, if you are, the composer is so interested in extended technique, that's your job. Go explore. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If yeah. You, I mean, that's, you should be curious about that. I mean, mm -hmm. I understand, but why go past all the fundamentals and straight to the extended technique? Yeah. Well, m my thought is that it's easier. I think it's easier. It's very hard to, hey, here is an instrument with a limited range and it's just pitches and rhythm, make something profound out of that. But if you turn the instrument upside down, dump water on it and then electrocute the water and then throw a billiard ball at it, man, that was totally original. Like instant, yeah. instant groundbreaking original thing that I just totally pulled out of my ass. You know, I, th I think it's it's easier. Attention. Yeah. 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 
Anywho, hey, well, let's try to let's try to click through these these Facebook questions uh, since we're we're nearing close to the end. Let's see, what do we want to do next? Let's do I'm this one. I'm interested in the one about building chops. Sure. Okay. That's yeah, not we'll... usually my kind of question, which I think everyone knows. But um, <laughs> so this one comes from William Brown, and he references the liquid drum fast hands challenge that everybody was doing. Casey and some you other tools guys. Tools on me a little bit. It's good. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. It's um, good. yeah, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but he asks, <laughs> um, how do you approach building chops on marimba without damaging your hands in Steven's grip? Because this is something that I, I see in a lot of young players, and I would like to know how to guide them. I, I think it's not a not a difficult um, question to answer. Number one, I think. Um, I mean, grip is such an old subject, I think. I, I really don't care. I, I told my students, I don't care. I mean, I started with traditional, right? I went to Burton, and I sometimes play mm-hmm. Stevens, or modified muscle, we should call it, because that really was modified muscle. Or whichever grip, if you could make music and you can express yourself, then whatever the technique is, is valid, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two. I don't understand why people hurt their hands because I think, um, don't you spend like the most of your effort sound rather than like how to hold it and it, if it, if it's wrinkle and tension, you know, don't do it. Yeah. I mean, period. No. Imagine a pianist like, don't do that. I mean, you're gonna hurt yourself, right? No matter what sports, too. But some, it's weird. Somewhere along the way they're learning this. Like they come in and, and you say like, okay, why don't you just, just move your hand like this uh, so you can play that note. Right. Oh, but then, and then they start whipping out of these technical terms like, Oh, but then my finger leaves my perch and I'm not supposed to do that. And I just, I'm like, where are you guys learning this from? Cause so many of them have that, like so many, it's like a disease. They like, can't like, they can't, it's like, Hey, well, you're not, playing anything anyway so what's the benefit of this first of all and yeah i'm trying to just get you to relax they're like but then i violate figure 11 a b k with the pinky finger like what what i i don't I have no idea what that is and nor do i care you 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 can't seem to like <laughs> move your you know i don't know it's it's weird they're learning this somewhere like a cult I think it's the same as violin. I mean, if you hold a bow and then you're like this, you know, right? moving your, um, moving your, your, your wrist, yeah, up and down instead of this, right? I mean, there's so many variations to that. No. Yeah. And so yeah. It's not to say that well, you can never, you know, have your fingers out here a little bit more because you know, because my finger, my my pinky is so short, so I can't do it. But you gotta uh, practice and extend it. That's crazy. That yeah, is so, crazy. That's like it's like talking about arranging the deck on the Titanic. I mean, why? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's irrelevant. I think whatever works for uh, people themselves. Say teach a high school lesson, you know, a interested student or something, and they come in expecting that that's what they're all we're going to talk about is like how well you're executing the grip, how well you're following those rules, and then when you start talking about musical things, they're they're like confused. Like I think when you say do it if it works for you, I don't even think a lot of them have an idea of what working is. 
It's like working is I'm doing the grip right. That's the aesthetic. I'm pulling off the thing. Like, I don't know where the heck they're learning this, but somewhere. <laughs> I've seen it a lot. I think a lot of it comes from the marching activity, you know, and I think this this desire to, this competitive nature and this desire to have something tangible, you know, something that you can check a box, you know, yeah. and different levels. And I think so. so I think, I don't know. I think that's where it comes from. And on that note, I think another thing is, I mean, Lee Howard Stevens published method of movement, what around 1980 with these explicitly detailed photographs and all. And then not too long after that, as far as I've heard, he sort of somewhat changed his style of playing. And that's sort of the old school Stevens grip. And if you look at Bob Van Sice's students, they all play with their hand turned over slightly. And so I think a lot of it is like, oh, the, the textbook says this, and no one does the textbook necessarily anymore. So I think that's maybe part of it, too. But I yeah. think uh, uh, maybe we could talk about the title of the book instead of uh, our people are putting so much uh, importance on the grip, you know, I got to do it like this, got to hold it like this. And, and like the ironic thing is he even, he even addresses that in his book. He says the book is the method of movement. It's a method of playing marimba, not a book about a grip. It's about the movement, right? And then how we move is how we sound as well. But it's not so much about the grip itself. Ah, that word has so much tension implied. I hate that word. Grip, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Wait, can we start a movement now to talk about that word? That would be fitting. Yeah. But my yeah. students have actually remarked that there are certain words I will not say. I will not say grip and I will not say tension in lessons. I just like, and they laugh because they can see me trying to think of all these synonyms. And they're like, you mean the grip? I'm like, yeah. We're going to find a different thing to say. <laughs> well, even, even Lee will say, you know, I've, I've seen master classes where he's annoyed when you call it grip. He says it's an entire technique. It's the technique. It's a it's a whole idea that is, is much more beyond how you hold it. So, so again, I, I don't think this is like his fault. You know, if anything, he's, uh, you know, especially recently, he's, he's like fighting against this idea. Don't call it grip. It's this much more comprehensive, almost philosophical kind of thing. Uh, okay. Last question. AJ Covey, we've talked a little bit about UNT, but part of his question that we didn't talk about is what was the environment like for you at the time of UNT? I guess you did talk about that a little bit, but he says, I'm also curious about your thoughts on the barrier system, if you feel comfortable about going there. I'll speak briefly about it. Um, that period of time when I was at North Texas was um, was really interesting. I mean, look at Keith Carlock and uh, Jason Sutter, John Riley, Jim Jim Riley and Rich Redman, all these great jump set players coming out of Ari, um, coming out of that that school. It's all jazz and drum set players, and I was surrounded by them. Um, lots of people from drum core world, yeah, Mike McIntosh and you know uh, Rich uh, Rick Rodriguez and um, even. Brian West was on a snare line with me, and it's it's in drama together, and it, it was crazy. I, I met all these people. They're not classical, they're not classical percussionists per se, but I was influenced by um, by them. I feel like I was in a community, a, a greater community together, not just 
marimba, not just snare drum, but, but it's like it's the whole drumming community. And that affected me because I listened to uh, the lab bands all, all the time. I was very into drumline, as you know. So that was pretty, really cool. And as far as the barrier system, it's just a qualification. It's just a requirement to to make sure that every student graduate from that school could you know, play certain things on vibraphone, could improvise if they, they need to, but, uh, on drum set, on everything. I, I'm sort of in agreement with that, although it does not have to be an official system. I think that as a teacher, I think we could custom make um, a system for each student and still ensure that they could play all this, this, these instruments. Right? Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, a place that big, a curriculum that long, it's just you gotta have organizational ways, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could speak to the barrier system really quickly, a little bit too, for anyone that's that's not familiar with what we're talking about, the barriers are basically uh, there's different levels, and you have to pass off the different levels. So, level one is these certain Serone etudes, and on your jury they call Serone etude number seven, and you have to play that, and you can either pass it or fail it, and then you have to repeat it. Um, and a, this whole barrier thing reminds me of, I remember when I was at UNT, one of the band directors, Nick Williams, said, like, your days of high school, like, going to festival to get a one are over. Every performance you give needs to be a one at this point. There's no such thing as getting a two anymore. And to me, the barriers, it's like, yeah, like, the snare drum barriers are nothing, like, crazy. It's not like you have to play singles at 300 beats per minute. It's, I mean, it's, you know, can you pass off your Serone etudes or something like that? And it's like, if if you can't pass off your barriers, no, you do not deserve to graduate. You do not get to pass go. <laughs> and so, to me, like, the barrier system is just a way of ensuring that everyone in such a large program at least develops a minimum level of competency on all the instruments but if you're a performance major just barely passing your barriers, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks so much for doing 127 with me. This is the first, I guess it's the second episode of the new year. It's the first one where we are recording in the new year. So happy new year, everyone. And man, she woo. Thanks so much. It's always a blast to hang with you. And thanks so much for just awesome information and just everything you've done for percussionists and marimba and all of us. Thank you for having me. And I've been following on and off and I've seen some episodes. I found them really, really educational. And thanks for what you do. Seriously, not just the podcast, but what you do. And, um, Let's all do it together. Yeah. Wow. Well said. Thanks so much. Man, Laurel, Megan, Ben, we will catch you guys in a week. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Laura, bye. bye. My very best.